If you get a chance to visit the Central Valley of California, you're going to see an incredible diversity of crops. But you also see quite a bit of bare soil. Is regenerative agriculture even feasible in these specialty crop systems? You know, I've farmed conventionally for a long time, and I'm kind of in this middle ground where I see regenerative as an important thing, but there's certain things on the conventional side that are still very valuable and important. So integrating these things together and collaborating with growers. Silas Rosso is the president of California Ag Solutions. He works directly with growers who want to implement or at least experiment with some of these regenerative practices. Planting some of these cover crops has been really impressive to see how much that changes the soil biome, how they cycle nutrition into the tree, and most importantly, how the soil responds to its ability to hold water and give water back to the plant during peak demand. But a transition to regenerative agriculture that a lot of people seem to be pushing goes far beyond just trying new practices. It requires a mindset shift to more of a systems-based approach. How to have the best solution for this field and then the same management very next field, I might have to do something very different. And that can be a big challenge because that takes a lot of mental capacity to be able to do that. Silas Rosso of California Ag Solutions on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for today's Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Before we dive in, I'd like to take a minute to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you are welcome to join. Visit calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more. Again, that's calgaryagbusiness.com. Also, stick around to the end of today's episode for a bonus segment about Calgary-based livestock water recycling with CEO Karen Schuett. Thanks so much, as always, to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now to today's featured episode with Silas Rosso, president of California Ag Solutions, which is a crop consulting company that helps growers leverage technologies and production practices that both meet the needs of the crop and the goals of the farmer. Silas says they are known for their in-depth understanding of the ecological environments for where their growers operate and their ability to use things like biomimicry and other nature-based solutions that we're going to talk a lot about in today's episode. And I need to give a quick shout out here. I actually was appointed to Silas by someone I interviewed for the Almond Journey podcast. It was somebody who was trying to incorporate regenerative practices in commercial large-scale almond almond production. And he said that whenever he has a question, all he does is call up Silas and he gets his answer right away. And he considered Silas to be his go-to for learning these practices. So thank you to Kyle Nichols for giving me the idea to reach out to Silas. Those of you who are regular longtime listeners know that whenever I have a farmer or grower who unprompted gives me a recommendation to somebody who has a great product or great expertise, I always take those very seriously. And you often hear from them here on the show. And this is an example of that. 
Silas received his college education at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and grew up around agriculture his whole life. Driving tractors, irrigating fields, and figuring out how crops grow was a valuable part of his education. He started at California Ag Solutions in 2008, and then in 2014, he began managing the day-to-day operations. He says his drive to seek out the very best practices for California farmers comes from his love of agriculture and technology. In today's episode, we discuss regenerative practices in specialty crops, especially tree crops, although Silas works with plenty of other crops as well. We discuss how water becomes a factor in decisions to implement these practices and the toughest transition of all, which is the mindset shift that these approaches require. I'm going to drop in the conversation here where Silas is describing his background and what led him to some of those mindset shifts of his own. When I first got out of college, I did a lot of farm management for a large family dairy operation. And so I was kind of in charge of a lot of the feed production, so all the logistics, a lot of the organization of what has to be done on dairy farms. And it's pretty complex. It's about 15,000 acres. And so one of the guys that was kind of like the mentor that I worked real closely with would just, you know, say his simple phrase was, you know, the best thing you can put in your field is your shadow. So, you know, there's all these fertilizers or soil amendments that we always talk about, which those can be great tools. But the reality is, is when you're in these fields, when you're in different situations, you understanding what you're looking at is a really important thing to look at. Because you can't just look at a test alone, whether it be a soil sample, a sap analysis, like all those things are great tools. But when you're in the field, you really get to see how things work together. You see the sometimes the most obvious when you're there. And sometimes not so obvious, but really just trying to be in that situation, be fully there, not on the phone and doing a million other things, right? We're always distracted with things. But that was something that I learned and I continue to develop that skill, I guess you could say, with a lot of other people who'd been in the field for a long time. Uh, There's a few other guys that have done a lot of soil work underneath uh, USDA, ARS and they had a lot of really interesting things to say just by digging a soil pit and going three, four feet down and you start understanding some of the sediment layers, the different hard pan layers and, you know, just understanding, okay, what are the weeds and what are the species that do well in this area? And then mimic that when, you know, making a cover crop mix and looking at, okay, what are the trees that do well in these areas? Well, why do those species do well? And trying to understand, you know, what is it underground that we might not see, but yet we start looking at a lot of the other species that are growing in that area they have a lot of answers for us. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it it definitely adds a whole new element, a new dimension. Maybe that's a little bit of a pun with the, the multiple layers of soil, but to kind of what you're doing. Take us back to, so you had this revelation about biomimicry and really understanding getting your shadow out there and actually walking the fields. What made you think, you know, there was a market for people out there who wanted to find a different way? Was there a specific problem that you're like, I can help with that problem or Kind of how did that work when you started California Ag Solutions? Yeah. So actually, my business partner started it and he hired me. And that's a really neat story. So California Ag Solutions actually started way back in about 2000, kind of about pretty much 2004, 2005 by Monty Bottons. And so he started this just wanting to really work with California growers and implement reduced tillage and no-till systems in our farming systems. He had worked out on the west side, kind of in the Firebaugh area. And had seen a lot of tillage on the soil out there and pass after pass after pass just to get a crop in. So, you know, we're used to 
five to 10 different tillage passes in a field to get it ready to plant something. So, you know, you just look at that as far as the soil health side of everything. There's a lot of uh, destruction going on there for carbon. So one of the things that he really looked at is how does he implement different solutions that he was using on his farm back in Illinois in California. He just had a passion for California. So started a business, California Ag Solutions. And the main goal was actually start with reduced tillage cotton. So pretty much strip till cotton. At that time, cotton had kind of had a rough going. And so there was actually quite a bit of dairymen that had interest in reduced tillage. So really did a lot of strip till corn. And that's actually when I met Monty. I was managing that large dairy operation. And one of the things that I had a passion for was when I'm doing all of this logistics and this planning, the resources that I had to have as far as the manpower, the equipment, the amount of diesel I needed, trying to farm 15,000 acres, that was a lot of resources that had to come together. And we were doing anywhere from five to eight passes to get ready for corn. And that was just for corn silage. So I was always looking for some more efficient ways to do things. And uh, Monty had actually, I talked to him and he brought up the idea of, strip tilling. So just using an Orthman one tripper and then planting right after that and looked at that and like, you know, let's give that a shot. So I had a certain acreage uh, that I was going to kind of play with and experiment. And it actually was a fantastic success because we addressed not just the tillage side of everything, but we also were focusing on how does tillage change the nutrient cycling in the soil. And that was impressive to see because we did uh, some on-seed treatments, we did some foliars, and we we're really adjusting nutrition of what the plant needed instead of just saying, hey, we're going to put on 200, 300 units of nitrogen. We actually played a little bit more of the game of what is it that needs to be done. Uh, more strategic, the feed quality that we got off of those fields that we did the experiment on, so not just strip till, but we also did nutrition on them, was far better. It was a few hundred dollars per acre more that you were generating when you took it all the way through using like a milk 2006 calculator to find out what that value of milk per acre was being produced. So that was something that really caught my attention on, you know, really paying attention to the little details in the field. And that was something that I think also encouraged me and made me wonder, like, there's got to be other ways that we can be doing this uh, more efficient and create a better product. And that was just for dairy feed. And that has really gone into a lot of other categories that we work with now on a large scale. So almonds, pistachios, grapes, tomatoes. So what are the little things that we can do with reducing tillage and adjusting nutrition to its ideal amount? It really can create a completely different product. Right. Right. And, and, you know, walk us through kind of taking those same principles and and applying them to permanent crops like almonds and pistachios. What's that process been like? And, you know, what results are you seeing from growers that are looking into that? Oh, man, there's a lot here. (laughs) We could spend a lot of time on this. So I think one of the exciting things that we've seen is, you know, all crops, you know, they all grow in the dirt and they all grow using water, right? Those are some of the things that are remaining the similar. I'm sure there's some people that like cringe when I said dirt, but honestly, some of this does not even qualify for soil. And what's interesting is when we look at these simple systems of reducing tillage and say corn, there's been so much research done on the corn side of everything. So we can take a lot of interesting principles and practices that have been 
successful and not so successful in, say, the Midwest, bring them to California. And that's really one of the things is how do we make it practical here? And that's a lot of background that I've had in agriculture has helped me see just what is going to work and what isn't. And, and I've stubbed my toe quite a few times on things, but there's been some neat successes that I've collaborated with growers and I've learned a lot. And I've learned a lot of how much I don't really know. And so a lot of those principles have transferred directly into some of the permanent crop space because these plants react to tillage. And, you know, most guys are not doing a tremendous amount of tillage in almonds. That's not that common. Pistachios, a lot more when they're disking the floors. Grapes, quite a bit more. A lot of these other crops, there is quite a bit of tillage. So just reducing that and getting that out of the system has been tremendous just to show guys how much water infiltration can improve when you don't disturb the soil. And then really when we're planting some of these cover crops, these multi-species cover crops has been really impressive to see how much that changes the soil biome, all the microbes that are there, how they cycle nutrition into the tree, and most importantly, how the soil responds to its ability to hold water and give water back to the plant during peak demand, during high ET periods when the, it's really hot outside or when that crop's really pushing hard. So it's been really interesting to see you know, what we thought was maybe a typical pattern of applying nutrition and water. When we start introducing cover crops specifically and you know, reducing tillage, that really changes how that plant responds to the resources that you have out there. It's been surprising. And then there's some interesting things that we've seen where guys have really pushed on the regenerative ag side and really implementing the five soil health principles and integrating animals into their orchard system. So having sheep or goats graze in either almonds, pistachios, or any of those crops during the off season when we're not actually growing. And one operation has animals during part of the growing season. So it's been really interesting. And the amount of water we've applied has been significantly less. So about 60% of what our normal water application is, much less inputs and like almost zero nutrition applied very little insect issues, no fungal pressures. So when you look at the end of the day, that one producer is probably within about 10 to 15% of what net revenue is on a lot of these other high input production systems. So, you know, it makes you scratch your head sometimes. It's like, wow, I'm doing all this work, spending all this money per acre, and I can generate some revenue, but there's some other things. If I let the soil do what it's supposed to do and manage the system differently, there's some things that I can learn and actually get pretty close to the same net revenue. That's one of those things that scratch your head and it's like, how is this happening? As an agronomist, these things, I guess, don't always make sense when you really understand it's a biological system. What are the other tests or metrics that you're using to kind of evaluate the success of your programs over time? Yeah, great question, because I think one of the key things that we look at is we all love to measure things, right? That is really one of the things where we can find out, are we winning? Are we losing? We all want a scoreboard. It's kind of like who would play football if we didn't have a scoreboard, right? And same thing with farming. We have to make sure that, one, I think the biggest uh, marker of success is how is net revenue doing? Are we spending a whole bunch of money on projects just to say we're regenerative and not getting anywhere? Or are we spending less and less money and increasing our margin quite a bit? I would say the most important one is, are we profitable? Are we 
able to make a difference on our bottom line with this because we have to have success and to be truly sustainable and regenerative is we have to be able to make money doing these things so that we can continue to do these things. And I think that's what's been probably the easiest mark of success to be able to communicate to growers. And then some of the other ones, more of the scientific ones, is looking at organic matter, soil, organic carbon, watching those increase. But sometimes those can be a lot slower to increase in a Mediterranean climate like we have. We're very dry during the summer. It's bone dry. So those are all great metrics. You know, guys who really pay close attention to their fields where they know what the plant's supposed to look like and they start to see some really tough situations coming with weather and they start to see plants not responding to the heat like they used to. So yeah, really looking at all the metrics of the scientific side is important, but bottom line to me and most of the growers that I work with, it's got to be profitable. Yeah, no, I think that's going to resonate with pretty much any grower listening is profitability first, right? It's all got to kind of work into the the business that they're trying to run under risky and high pressure uh, situations. Well, you mentioned earlier that, you know, people are having a hard time defining the word regenerative, even though it's been used more and more and more out there. How do you define it? I mean, if you had one of your growers come to you and say, am I regenerative or or not? You know, maybe they said, hey, my customer's coming to me saying they want regeneratively grown XYZ product. Am I regenerative? You know, how, how are you answering that? Oh, man, that is a, another fun topic. That's a whole other podcast there. And I wouldn't even say I have the best answers for it. I think sometimes we as humans, we do a great job of overcomplicating things. And we really look at what are the ways that we can make ourselves either look smart or make this something that is unattainable to some. So they have to almost create job security for themselves, right? I guess that's maybe me on a soapbox with some of these things. But really, when I define regenerative agriculture, it comes down to, are you using the resources to their best potential, both soil, water, manpower, all of these things? And are you leaving things better by the end of that crop cycle? That really should be a simple, broad term that, you know, I would love to see more people adopt that. So is your crew, the guys that you have working on your farm, are they better off the end of that season, their health, mental stability, you know, are their family situations better? Because you've seen in agriculture, it can be tough on a family. And then are you truly taking care of the people that help you work? That's important. And then another one is, you know, are we really utilizing the water in the best way? Are we growing things efficiently and that makes sense? And for the most part, that's an important question. And most guys are doing that because that's obvious, right? We can't grow a low value crop with high value water. I would say most growers have that one figured out pretty clearly. But the one that's probably the biggest ambiguous area to focus in is the soil health, soil quality, that regenerative farming practices, because there's so much opinion, so many thoughts that surround soil health that it really can become confusing because what metric are we going to use, right? Are we going to look at soil organic carbon, which is important, no doubt, or are we going to look at, is that soil able to grow a better crop? What are all the other metrics that are really hard to measure, um, like the soil biome, like all the different microbes that are in there? We can measure those with like PFLA tests and looking at a lot of those things. And those are, I think, other good metrics to measure. But how accurately and how consistent can that be? Because some of those take some time. But really to sum it up is we have to ask ourselves, are we truly growing the best 
quality food we can with those resources. And I think there's different metrics that we can put in there, like reducing the chemical input side, whether that be chemical fertilizer side, whether it be pesticides, things that we look at there. So not necessarily organic, because I think organic has its own constraints, but you know, are we reducing things to a limit that we know we can still do a great job and not have to have excess? Okay. Yeah. And, and you, you just mentioned pests there. And I know earlier you, you mentioned kind of the people that are fully bought in on these regenerative systems that they're helping with pest management. Can, can you help me understand how the connection there, you know, what about these systems is reducing the need for pesticide for the growers? Yes. So what's interesting is there's a lot of plant defense mechanisms that these crops have the ability to um, have different pheromones, different compounds that they release into the air, into the soil that help other pests, or I should say beneficial insects, beneficial bacteria come after the pathogen that is attacking the plant. And so there's these interesting defense mechanisms that plants already have. But when we have situations where the soil is not as healthy, where it might be too heavy in certain uh, nutrients or even different uh, chemical residues, those plants don't have that same ability to communicate with the surrounding biome. And that plant, when it doesn't have that ability to communicate, pests really take off and can really cause some damage really quick. Now, when that plant is healthy in healthy soil, the speed at which that plant can release um, those signals is actually fairly quick. And that will bring in beneficial insects. So uh, ladybugs, all kinds of other beneficial insects that can keep other insects at bay. Same thing with bacterias, fungal species. So anytime you increase calcium levels in a plant, it really improves plant health, mainly because of cell wall thickness. Um, So fungal species are harder for it to get through the cell membrane. It's just a lot of interesting things that the plant has fantastic defense mechanisms. It's just normally we don't have situations where those plants can flourish with using their own system. So we've created some fantastic chemicals that have taken care of that in those situations where those plants don't have. But the challenge with a lot of that is when you create these chemicals that have had some tremendously great success, we get kind of reliant on that. And we can get to a point where a little bit lazy as far as growers, where we can rely on those things instead of trying to understand the natural system and what it was designed to do. And and when you're working with new growers on this, I'm sure it runs the gamut, but maybe you can give an example or two of where does this become the most challenging for them to, to implement and or stick with? That's a really good question, Tim, because I think this is really difficult to uh, people who have been doing it for a while and been very successful in what they've done. And that's really good. It's There's been some guys who I've had great conversations with, have had great success, and they've been very conventional. And they have done a lot of the things that you know, you'd look at through the regenerative lens and just kind of like squirm and say, ooh, that's bad. But the challenge is when guys have done really well and we've had great success in any of the areas, because, you know, I've farmed conventionally for a long time and I'm kind of in this middle ground where I see regenerative as an important thing, but there's certain things on the conventional side that are still very valuable and important. So integrating these things together and having those conversations and collaborating with growers is probably the most important conversation. And some people have the mindset for change. Some people truly want to make a difference with their operation. And what's fun is really getting to know their operation 
and what drives them, what motivates them. There are some guys that are just really innovative in spirit. Not everybody is innovative. We might you know, want to be innovative in certain things, but do we have the mindset to truly make change that might be uncomfortable? And that, those are some interesting you know, situations that you run into because you know, anytime you challenge our comfort level, that can bring some pretty hostile defense mechanisms that we bring ourselves, right? We like to have things in a system that works successful. And when you look at regenerative practices and some of these other situations, there's going to be some patience building opportunities where you're not going to have success overnight. It's going to take some time. But do you want that end goal to be more balanced, more successful in that area to where things can actually work the way that they were designed to work? And that takes time, but it takes the mindset to get there. Very cool. Well, is there, I know you, uh, you do a tour. I don't know if it's every year or from time to time about, you know, featuring some of these success stories of people using these regenerative practices in California. Could you maybe just choose a story or two to share of a specific grower, you know, a turnaround story that kind of illustrates some of the principles you try to uh, help farmers with? Yeah, no, I've got a bunch of those. I think one of them that comes to mind is probably most relevant to, I think a lot of growers is, uh, this is a few years ago, we had had a pretty substantial rainstorm in March. I can't remember which year it was, but it was like about three inches of a downpour within like a 24-hour period. It was fantastic. Beautiful amount of rain. And one of the areas we had done a cover crop in pistachios, a beautiful pistachio block. It's about a 400-acre block and beautiful. It was, things were starting to come in really nice straight lines, just one of those picture perfect type of situations. And the neighbor who was actually uphill just a little bit, that was completely clean. There was not a weed or anything growing in that field. Um, all the trees are dormant at this time. Everything's looks dead on the one side and we've got life on our side. And after this three inch storm came through, the grower where we had done all the cover crop, there was not a pond on his field of water. Everything had infiltrated. He got all three inches in there. The return pond that he had to capture any excessive runoff, it was empty. It didn't have anything in it. But the neighbor who was actually uphill a little bit had all the ponding and his field was actually overflowing water into this field that had cover crop. So it was kind of funny. The grower sent me a message and it's like, man, sure glad I did cover crops because he'd always struggled with water infiltration. And he watched the neighbor just having to pump out the ditches, having to dig out trenches so they get water off the field. And that was one of those fun aha moments for a grower to see and for his neighbor to observe, like, how come you didn't have any water, you know, standing in your field? And the customer that we had is like, well, I've got cover crops. And the other guy was just like, huh. Instead of saying, I think I need to do cover crops too. He's like, well, good for you. And he still hasn't done any cover crops since. So it's one of those things. Our customer had the mindset. He wanted to do it, wanted to be successful. The other guy just saw it over the fence, saw what it did, saw the success of getting water into the soil, but still didn't want to make that change. And that's all right. There's going to be some people like that. But I think that's just a great lesson to see that, you know, these things, you never know when you're going to get that three inch storm. So you got to be prepared. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and, you know, one concern I'm sure you get from some of the people you work with is like, wait, I don't even have enough water for my primary crop and you want me to plant this cover crop? Where am I supposed to get the water for that and still have enough for my primary crop? H how do you overcome that challenge? 
You know, that's a good conversation to have because the Jeff Mitchell out of UC Davis has done a really good job of showing, you know, how much water does a cover crop use in a orchard type setting. And from the research that they've done, and this has been pretty extensive, and I'll have to get you maybe in the show notes, I could get you some of the links to their studies and research, but it really is close to a net zero as far as consumption when managed properly. In a situation like what I was talking about with the animals integrating, I'll tell you a little bit more about that because that's that's something that's blowing my mind. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in the conventional, kind of this step where we're trying to introduce some of these cover crops um, and not really doing animals yet, we're managing a cover crop where we're terminating it in that May timeframe and before our evapotrate inspiration rates get really high. So we're not really using a whole lot of water. And what's interesting is when we have rain events out here in California, it seems like we're getting less and less frequency of rain events, but more and more intensity. So bigger storms. And typically when a lot of these fields are just bare dirt, when the water comes at heavy rates, it just sheets off. It doesn't have the ability to infiltrate. The application rate of rain exceeds the infiltration rate of what our soil has the ability to absorb. So you're naturally you're going to have a lot of water that runs off to the end of the field. And then when you've got cover crops in there, that plant really opens that soil up in a way that you get almost all of that water absorbing directly into that soil profile. So you're getting that percolation rate dramatically increased, sometimes three to tenfold more than what bare soil is. So there's a lot more water that makes it into the soil. So when we talk about like recharge and trying to build up our water bank in the soil, cover crops play a significant role in just getting that soil to absorb water. Um, as long as you don't let them go too long in that kind of system, that's not a problem. Yeah, that's been really fascinating. And that's probably been one of the most fun things to observe because that's an aha moment for a lot of these growers. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are against, you know, us at times, you know, when you're growing a crop, whatever it's going to be, you always feel like you're running into problems. And then when you have a solution that is not only beautiful to look at, but it's actually fairly simple to do, cover crops can bring a lot of joy to a farmer. They might look tough at first because you might be used to a clean, barren floor and with a tree and nice straight line. So that symmetry is somewhat appealing. But over time, the mark of beauty starts to change in the eye of the beholder. Right. And I want to make sure I kind of understand the math here on the water infiltration because you you made a comment earlier and I know you were speaking in generality. So obviously this is this is not going to be true in all cases, but you said kind of 60% of the normal water applied, but you also said that the crop will use about the same amount of water with cover crops that they would without it. So the difference between those two things has to be in water infiltration. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So to clarify that 60%, so there was one specific grower who was integrating animal livestock grazing into his orchard, and he's been applying 60% of what normal ET rates are for that field for irrigation. So instead of putting on, say, two and a quarter inches, he's doing, what, 1.3 or 1.4 inches of water applied. And he's also growing a cover crop that the sheep are grazing. And that's where, you know, in my mind as an agronomist, it was hard for me to understand how that's even possible because his load was lighter. Um, he was only around the 2000 pound mark of almonds, but you know, reducing that much water and growing a cover crop 
and supporting sheep grazing there, because that's a whole different profit center right there, in addition to the almonds, that was something that was kind of like, uh, how does this work? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because normally we're in a very linear mindset of this plus this equals that. And we have to have a certain amount of water to produce a certain amount of yield. And when we start to see these ratios or these efficiencies of, okay, how many acre inches do I need to apply to create a thousand pounds of nuts? When we look at these ratios, our normal standard way of looking at it, we can get pretty close tolerance to you know one guy's practice to another. But as we started to see how certain people are integrating animals, that dramatically changes that ratio almost so much that it doesn't make sense. And I think that's the part that I enjoy is when I run across things that don't make sense, that makes me question what I thought was reality. Hmm. And can you think of a specific example of when you've like, you've had to change your own mindset because of something you just saw so consistently? <laughs> oh, daily, daily, Tim. So I think, you know, herbicides was an interesting one as far as um, in the past, I told you, you know, I farmed a lot conventional and, you know, farming more on this, the fence of, you know, how do I take great principles from both sides, but really make it practical, really trying to move people through this progression into a better way to farm. When I look at herbicides, that's a really tough one because we have gotten so reliant on using some of these and, you know, some of the other mechanisms to control a cover crop or control weeds goes back to mechanization. So, okay, now do we have to till the ground? So which is the lesser of two evils? Am I willing to, you know, put a chemical on the ground or am I willing to disc and destroy carbon that I've worked so hard to build? And so sometimes it's a difficult choice of, you know, what tool am I going to use in these situations? And okay, do I use a certain herbicide that's maybe a contact and it's not systemic? Okay, great. Do I use vertical tillage or do I use something that's more of a deeper tillage tool? There's a lot of decisions to make. And that's one of the things that we really try to help growers make those decisions together. And, you know, what is the lesser of the two evils? Because there isn't a one size fits all with regenerative agriculture and especially with conventional agriculture. There's not one size fits all. And that's, we want to find something that's simple, right? We want to find something that we can just repeat over and over and over and create a simpler life for ourselves. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, and I think this is probably my biggest, I don't know, hang up or one of my biggest struggles in this arena is, man, it can become very intensive to figure out how to have the best solution for this field. And then the same management, very next field, I might have to do something very different. And that can be a big challenge because that takes a lot of mental capacity to be able to do that. But you know you're doing the right thing. And do I need to be a little bit smaller in how I think rather than larger scale? So there's a lot of interesting questions that get brought up when you start looking at all of this. Well, thank you very much to Silas Rosso of California Ag Solutions for being on today's show. Go learn more about the work they're doing over at their website, which is calagsolutions.com. As always, link will be in the show notes as well. And speaking of Ag Solutions, we have a bonus segment on today's episode featuring a different solution in agriculture. I've asked our quarterly presenting sponsor to give us a sense of the innovative things happening in Calgary by letting me feature a few of the companies based there on these brief spotlights. Today, we hear from Karen Schuett about what they're doing over at Livestock Water Recycling. 
So my name is Karen Schuett. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Livestock Water Recycling, and we are creating value from livestock waste for protein producers like dairies, hog farms, and feedlots, as well as food processing plants to try and go lagoon-free in their process, and then just pull out any valuable nutrients from the waste and from the manure and create clean, potable water. Nice. Okay. So lagoon free. So walk us through, you know, if you're one of your customers, a dairy producer, what are the challenges to going lagoon free? I have a feeling it has something to do with water, given the name, but uh, talk to us kind of about why they would want to go lagoon free and what the challenges are for customers to do that generally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we meet farms, they are usually uh, struggling with moving their manure liquids. The management of manure is expensive. And as you can imagine, it's difficult and it's a headache and they've got to get staff to do that. And it's probably the least uh, sexy part of, of dairying. So, you know, it's always everyone's last thing they've got to do and they've got to deal with it. And it's lots of liquid. So when you look at a dairy manure lagoon, for instance, you'd be seeing something that has 95% water and 5% manure particles. When we first looked at that, we were astonished that there was just nothing available technology-wise to work on that. Uh, we came from a water treatment background in oil and gas. So looking at that, we were like, this is a water treatment issue. Just we need to extract those particles out. For dairies, they've got to move that you know, twice a year usually. And it's a lot of movement of just water. So what our vision is, is to get rid of those lagoons, process that waste in a, you know, decentralized way all around the US and globally, in fact, move the solids, move the fertilizer liquids, and then use that clean water back into their flush or for irrigation. There's value in that clean water as well. And now I, I could see a couple of different situations here, and, and there's probably more than what I'm thinking right now. And I mean, number one is the return on investment of what they're going to be able to sell in that case, you know, fertilizer for is worth whatever the cost of the system is going to be. Uh, number two, you probably have some areas where lagoons are being cracked down upon for various reasons. So due to regulation, they want to get ahead of it and get rid of the lagoon. Is that right? And uh, maybe walk us through an example, uh, if you have one of the decision a customer made and kind of what the outcome has been. Yeah. So we saw a lot of states where there was, you know, lawsuits pending, community lawsuits, and then also regulatory environment that was maybe not saying you have to get rid of your lagoon, but it was making it very impossible to spread manure or, you know, the nutrient management plans were being cracked down on to try and um, reduce the amount on the properties. But then you have to buy land to spread manure, which either was expensive, wasn't available, wasn't really feasible. So all of that just doesn't make sense economically. So our whole plan was okay, let's get rid of that process of, you know, having too much manure for your land or for your regulatory environment. Uh, we've seen farms in Washington state where the, the environment was very, you know, legal and, and uh, difficult. Be proactive, put in systems of ours, and then now they are selling carbon credits. So they can, you know, sell carbon credits into the voluntary market and make money off of that. So, you know, not only were they being proactive against any potential regulatory environment, but they were also, you know, looking at opportunity to make money there. Right. 
And from what I heard, it's pretty energy intensive to remove water from manure. Is that right? You know, um, traditionally, the solid liquid separators that people have used on farms have been very energy intensive. And where our process was developed to be less energy intensive, extract a higher amount of particle from the manure, and then also to achieve this in a way that is very uh, little labor associated with it. So fully automated. When we first began our company, we were looking at, you know, water treatment equipment that a municipality would use. It's just not practical on farm. It needs to be automated and you need to be extracting a large amount of particles with a very little amount of energy. So that was our whole focus going forward. Yeah. Let's talk about the water aspect of this. Uh, water is a huge deal. I'm in Idaho. I'm from California. Uh, water is a big deal to me and to a lot of the people that are that are close to me. I would assume this water that gets pumped out to the lagoons evaporates essentially and and we just lose it from the system. So uh, this is probably capturing and reutilizing a lot of water. What have you noticed as far as what your dairy customers can save in terms of water? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question, especially coming from California. We're really working on water there because of, you know, the drought conditions. But even where I'm from in Calgary, Alberta, we had drought last year that was really, really bad in July and August. And, um, you know, the feedlots and and beef farmers here were really affected by drought. So we want to recycle every drop we possibly can. Our system recycles up to 75% of the water that's flushing through these systems back as clean water. So, you know, recapturing 75% of that lagoon as water you can use back as flush or as cow cooling, spritzing, you know, uh, or irrigation. I mean, simply irrigation is awesome too. But just not losing that as it sits, like you say, it sits and evaporates from the lagoons. Excellent. Well, Karen, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. Uh, Anything that we didn't get to that you were hoping to at least mention? No, I think just that um, I wanted to kind of uh, talk about in Calgary how we've got this growing ag tech business. We've really seen, because we come from energy tech, we have a lot of tech people here, and a lot of them are diversifying into ag. So, you know, we're hiring a lot of people in our office, but a lot of ag tech companies are hiring here, and we've seen... SVG Ventures Thrive has seen Calgary as a growing place. So they're a Silicon Valley group, but they headquartered their Canadian office in Calgary to grow from this base because we've got so much, you know, ag and energy experience here. So we're a big ag space outside of, you know, the Midwest and California. We're we're also in ag here. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Thank you so much to Karen Schuett for being part of the show. Learn more about them at livestockwaterrecycling.com. And again, I'll give one more quick plug for our quarterly presenting sponsor. Go to calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more there. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.